0: My name is Josh Hirsch. I want to thank Rob Tarr and the entire editorial team at JNIS for allowing us to do this podcast today on the CPT. Today I'm joined by the ASNR CPT team, Dr. Ray Tu and Dr. Jackie Bello. Ray Tu is a native Washingtonian. He is an associate professor of radiology at the George Washington University chairman of radiology at the United Medical Center, and chair of the American College of Radiology Medicaid Network. In addition to his many other accomplishments, he currently serves as the ASNR representative to the CPT. Dr. Jackie Bellow is well known to many of the listeners of this podcast. She's a friend to interventional neuroradiology and extremely well known throughout the community. She's a full-time practicing academic neuroradiologist who's trained many of the people that are currently functioning practitioners in the New York metro area and beyond. Jackie's list of accomplishments is really impossible to go through because it is so prolific. I thought I would highlight the fact that our medical school alma mater acknowledged her service by giving her a university gold medal, which is indeed a rare achievement. I would further say that I've known Jackie through service at multiple organizations, ASNR, ACR, AMA, where her advocacy is simply phenomenal and really particularly strong for our community. I think what she would be most proud of is the fact that in addition to these accomplishments, she's called Grammy by seven beautiful and wonderful grandkids. With that I welcome my friends, Ray and Jackie, and look forward to doing this podcast. Hello, Ray. Hello, Jackie. Hello. Hello.
1: Well, thank you guys for
0: joining us today. I thought we'd start off very simply, and Ray, maybe you can take this one. What is the CPT coding system that we're talking about? What's the system? What's the CPT code?
2: Thank you, Josh, for um, including me in this wonderful um, activity. And I uh, just wanted to begin about what CPT coding really is and it is a standardized description and a five-character alphanumeric system that coders and billers, healthcare services, and payers use for reimbursement. The purpose of CPT is to provide some uniformity to describe medical, surgical, and diagnostic services. The CPT code set is maintained by the AMA and through the um, CPT editorial panel. CPT codes describe the medical, surgical, diagnostic services, and communicates a uniform standard about these services and procedures among doctors, patients, accreditation organizations, financial, uh, and analytical purposes. So looking at the uh, portfolio of codes, they, they range from the 10,000 code series, which is for anesthesia, the 20,000 code series to 70,000 code series, which is surgery. The 70,000 code series, which is radiology, and the 80,000 pathology, and the 90,000 code sets are, are medicine services. So, for example, MRI brain, one of our core codes is in the 70,000, 70551, a CTA of the chest would be a 71275, and the MRI thoracic spine would be a 72146. Well, thank you, Ray.
0: That's really a great way to get us started. I, I think it's a funny thing, people hear CPT probably from the time they're in medical school and they don't necessarily think about its history and other stuff that we talked about in the article, but exactly what it is, which is what you just described, a specific way of coding the procedures that we're working on, and it's an iterative process that continuously gets updated. I think you hit on something important in taking advantage of the fact that Jackie's with us. I would ask, Jackie, can you describe the relationship of the CPT coding system and the AMA?
1: Absolutely. So the CPT coding system was first developed in 1966, and it was first published at that time. From that time forward, the AMA has owned the CPT process, and as Ray mentioned, it continuously maintains the CPT code set, and the maintenance by the AMA is accomplished through three annual meetings where the CPT panel, the editorial panel, convenes and accepts input from the various uh, societies and specialty advisors to begin the entire process. The relationship between CPT and AMA is important in that only specialty societies seated in the House of Delegates are entitled to send specialty advisors to the CPT. So, understandably, AMA membership carries with it this particular privilege of providing input and being involved in the very process that is at the first step of the reimbursement cycle.
0: Well, Jackie, that, that's a terrific point, And I think um, I would distill out two points that before reading the article might not have been intuitive to, to readers. The first is CPT is therefore a, a uh, an alphanumeric code that is largely created by the physicians um, that are using it in practice through their various advisors and different roles in the AMA. And the second point is that it's it's not a governmental agency. Rather, it's a direct part of the uh, representatives of American medicine through the American Medical Association. So I appreciate your clarifying that uh, with that uh, answer. Ray, let me throw it back to you. So now we know that there's a super organization of the AMA associated with this CPT process, which both of you guys are are long-term servants of and serving our community, for which we again thank you. And let me ask just simply, mechanically, how does a code become a code?
2: That's a fun question, and the reason why it's fun is because as complex as um, what this may seem on the surface, coding and the medical procedures and all the innovations, it's a very open process. In fact, any interested party can submit an application for changes to the CPT, for additions um, to the CPT. For consideration by the uh, editorial panel. So, specialty societies, individual doctors, hospitals, and third-party payers can submit requests to a CPT. The AMA staff looks at these requests, including the applications for existing or or new codes. If the staff determines that the request presents a new issue, or something significantly new information on an item to the panel that it reviewed previously, the application is then referred to members of the CPT Advisory Committee for their evaluation and commentary. So, Josh, really the CPT editorial panel meets, as Jackie said, three times a year, and the panel addresses nearly 350 major topics a year, And this typically involves more than 3,000 votes on individual items. It's a busy, busy process. The initial step, which includes um, the AMA staff and CPT advisor review, is completed when all the appropriate advisors have been contacted and have responded. And all the information requested of an applicant has been provided to the AMA staff, then Following review and compilation of CPT advisor's comments, the AMA staff prepares an agenda item that includes the application, the compiled CPT advisor comments, and a ballot for a decision by the CPT edi- editorial panel. So then once the panel has taken an action and, a preliminary, and preliminarily approved the minutes of the meeting, then the AMA staff informs the applicant of the outcome. So here are the possible outcomes, and there are four, really. One is that it can be a new code that is approved for addition or revision of an existing to existing nomenclature in which a case would appear in the forthcoming volume of CPT. Right now, we're in CPT 2014. Um, It can go to referral to a work group for further study. The uh, outcome may be a postponement to a future meeting, and that gives the applicant Time to provide additional information, which may be helpful, or it could be rejected.
0: Well, on that note of rejection, let me uh, ask a, a clarification point. Neurointerventionists are are frequently hearing about different types of CPT codes, Category 1 codes, Category 3 codes, probably most prominently. Could you take a second and clarify the difference between those two different things?
2: Sure, sure. Um Josh, the uh, Category 1 code silo, as I would call it, it's a very rigid criteria, and it has to satisfy five criteria. One is that the the device or drugs necessary for performance of that procedure uh, must be FDA cleared or approved. The next thing is that the procedure or service is performed by many doctors or physicians or other qualified healthcare professionals across the United States. The uh, third criteria that must be satisfied, uh, now these are not or, these are must, that the procedure or service is performed with frequency that is consistent with the intended clinical use, that is it has common, it's a service for a common condition with high volume, the procedure or service is consistent with current medical practice, and the last is the clinical efficacy of the procedure or service is documented in literature that meets the requirements set forth in a CPT code change application. So, it's a very rigid process that has to fulfill five criteria. Category three is an emerging technology silo, and it is a little bit looser, and the procedure or service must be recently or um, currently performed in humans and at least one of three criteria whereas Category 1 is you must have all five. In Category 3, it must meet one of these three criteria, and they are is that the application is supported by at least one CPT advisor representing the practitioner who would use this procedure. The second option may be the actual or potential clinical efficacy of the specific procedure or service is supported by peer-reviewed literature, which is available in English, For examination by the CPT editorial panel, or the third is that there is at least one institutional review board approval protocol of a study of the procedure or service being performed, or a description of a a current or ongoing U.S. trial outlining the efficiency of the procedure, or other evidence of evolving clinical utilization. So, Category 3 codes are approved for a five-year period. And the theory, Josh, is that by that time, investigational protocols would have either produced sufficient data for conversion to Category 1, or it would have failed to demonstrate utility, and this leads to the sunsetting of the code. So it is possible to extend a Category 3 code for an additional five years if it's supported by the relevant specialty societies and approved by the panel. But once used, Category 3 codes cannot be reused or resurrected.
0: I mean, that's a really terrific answer, Ray, and we could have an entire podcast just on, I think, that question. I think, um, in summary, Category 1 are our typical CPT codes. Category 3 are codes that are prominent in neurointerventional. An example of uh, one that there was just a recent article about in our journal is uh, sacroplasty, People sometimes confuse Category 3 codes as codes that cannot be associated with payment for a service. In fact, one can go to local carriers in order to obtain uh, payment for Category 3 services. And I would say for an evolving field like neurointervention, provide an opportunity for us to bring new technologies to market as we establish data with ongoing activities. So thank you, Ray, for answering that question. I'm sure it was on the mind of many of our listeners. Uh, Jackie, I'd like to swing back to you, if that's okay. Up front, uh, you talked about the CPT process being the first step in what some have termed uh, a life cycle of a code. And that involves the interplay of many different things, too many for us to talk about. I was hoping you might bring some color to the interplay between CPT, the the RUC, uh, for which we had uh, previously had a podcast for JNIS, and uh, perhaps CMS.
1: Absolutely, and thanks for that opportunity, Josh. Uh, I'm sorry I missed the RUC podcast um, because I am a uh, recovering uh, RUC specialty advisor myself. But uh, here we go. Once a CPT code has been established as Category 1, it is sent to the RUC, and what the RUC stands for is the Relative Value Scale, that's all the R, Update Committee. And so this committee is meant to establish a relative value among the myriad of CPT codes which represent individual services, exams, or procedures. So this RUC system was established back in the early 1990s and until recently it consisted of a panel of 29 physicians But most recently, two additional seats were added to ensure fairness in terms of representation for primary care entities. So, in fact, the two latest greatest RUC seats uh, are geriatrics and an additional rotating seat for primary care. And I'll digress for a moment to say that the addition of these two seats is just one of the ways that the AMA in the RUC process is trying to ensure not only the accuracy and efficiency of the process, but also the fairness and transparency. And in addition to adding these two seats, they've dedicated focus to the following entities evaluation and management codes, clearly important to primary care, coordination of care and the medical home, transitional care, preventive services, and importantly, practice expenses. So imagine a room where up to 300 advisors are gathered sitting around this panel of now 31 physicians ruck representatives and what they do is make a case for a particular rvu something we're all familiar with for a given procedure or test the panel then establishes a vote and as ray implied in the cpt process It doesn't always go that quickly or smoothly. After a presentation, the issue may be tabled to be reconsidered later in the meeting while some reconciliation exists between panel members with concerns over the proposed value and the pertinent specialty advisors. But be that as it may, eventually an RVU will get assigned and if not at that particular meeting, at the next meeting. And in fact, like the CPT, the RUC meets three times a year. Once this process is completed, the RUC makes annual recommendations to CMS regarding the recommended value for these physician services. Now, understand CMS may not accept these recommendations, in which case an appeal can be made and the process, in fact, gets reinvented. But once CMS has accepted the recommendation, CMS will issue on an annual basis, usually in November, but this year, It was later than the usual November 1st due to the two-week government shutdown. And what CMS issues every November is the Medicare fee schedule in a final rule. And this final rule is actually the description of the final decision for Medicare payment for services.
0: Well thank you thank you, Jackie. I do think that uh, people should know that the final rule is uh, uh, really often a couple of thousand pages long. It was released at four thirty on the day before Thanksgiving and provided excellent reading material for folks like Jackie and Ray right right through the holiday. Um, Jackie, fear not if you miss the rock and component coding uh, podcast, these are kept on archive and I would really encourage anybody that is enjoying listening to this uh podcast on CPT to uh at the JNIS website, click on the uh other podcast that complements this one on the ruck and component coding I think together. They're a very powerful method of providing uh discourse for our members about these incredibly critical uh topics regarding professional reimbursement. I think as we draw to a close here, I'd like to bring this uh, really down to the neurointerventional trenches. I'll throw this to Jackie, but Ray, please feel free to to jump in. Um, we've been in front of CPT with topics that are of interest to neurointerventionists, for example, carotid angiography, and I think right now, ongoing uh, myelography. Uh, can you provide uh, some uh, color as to how that process has worked for example in, in carotid angiography and myelography.
1: Well, Josh, as you can imagine, the concept of procedural coding, which has enjoyed a lifetime to date of component coding, which is translated as piecemeal for each part of a procedure that you do, uh, has come to an end. And through a request from CMS, we, as a group, were asked to consider bundling of procedural codes. And in the instance of carotid angiography, you can really think of it as two levels of bundling. In fact, the same is also true for myelography. The first level is simply to bundle the performance aspect of the code with the supervision and interpretation of the code. Now, there is a caveat, and perhaps it applies more to myelography than angiography, that the separation of performing and then supervising interpreting would still be allowed for the not-so-common instances where one physician meaning one category of physician, say a neurosurgeon, might perform the procedure, and another physician, not another neurosurgeon, but another category of physician would interpret the procedure, such as neuroradiology. So for those unusual instances, uh, the component coding would still be allowed in terms of performing and interpreting. So that's one way of bundling, and I sort of think of that as horizontal bundling. You no longer side-by-side code for doing it and supervising, interpreting it. The other level of bundling is a vertical one. And so it became clear that through the analysis of CMS recognizing that, gee, more than 75% of the time, when a common carotid injection is done, it's followed by an internal carotid injection, or in the instance of stroke work, when an aortic arch is done, it's then followed by a common carotid injection. Aren't we really, you know, slicing up the same procedure? And so through an incredible collaborative effort by 12 different societies, the CPT uh, panel chair recognized. Twelve people at the table. We were able to agree on a reasonable bundling of combinations of injections in the instance of the carotid angiography codes that likely are performed together so that there would not be component billing, but rather a more uniform way of recognizing that if you're going to eventually take the catheter all the way to the internal to document the cavernous segment stenosis, you therefore don't go ahead and bill for the common carotid that came before it and the aortic arch that came before it. So there is a bundling of codes in a vertical sense. And painful as that may seem, I would just advocate the following in two different ways. The collaboration is so important because it meant that it was not done for us by some remote entity. But secondly, we did not start the equivalent of a food fight with the neurosurgeons saying no, 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 one type of bundling is better than another, and the vascular surgeon saying, No, 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 they bundle this way. And so it really made what could have been very painful more cohesive in terms of an end result not being imposed upon us by people who don't understand this at all. And as you say, myelography is still a work in progress, but in a parallel fashion, uh, we have been asked to bundle myelography codes as well. And under discussion currently is the component of how much of it is done by plain film, how much of it is done by CT, and whether it's fair to go ahead and code for a plain film myelogram if all you're doing is putting the contrast in and grabbing one pick to make sure it's in the subarachnoid space. And this is under discussion currently and obviously right. will come to a fair resolution.
0: Ray, it sounds like you wanted to say something.
2: Yeah, I just want to just um, dovetail to what uh, Jacqueline said. And exactly right, the uh, CPT process is very thorough. And you know, there are 12 societies, but there are 17 members. There are 11 docs and there. are Associations, which are also a part of CPT, Blue Cross Blue Shield, America's Health Plan, AHA, and CMS, and we spend a lot of time as advisor and as as advisors and the CPT panel who arbitrates all this stuff to create a very high level of integrity of the code set. So, not only is there a lot of work into the coding integrity of these procedures, but and, and and that includes what work is involved, you know, what is the what is involved in this process, but also it it really sets the stage for the providers to or the doctors who are doing these procedures to really use the CPT properly. And so, if what Jacqueline mentioned, if you're doing a myelogram and you're injecting contrast media in the fecal sac, there are certain things that goes into each of these codes. There are certain views. There's a process in place. And so the provider needs to use the CPT definitions appropriately because what happens is, is that if a, if a code is misapplied, maybe um, by accident or not understanding the, um, what the definition is of the code, then the whole process can get a little wobbly, and then it may cause a particular code to be inappropriately flagged as being overused or inappropriately used when it really was the provider not understanding uh, what the definition is of these various codes. So we go through a lot of work, and the panel really listens to the input of the, the advisors to bring codes to the table. But then it is the ultimate responsibility of those using the codes to use the codes appropriately. Well, that's great. Let
1: me just insert one thing here about personal responsibility. And I should have mentioned this when I was mentioning the RUC process. How the specialties come up with a recommended RVU for a given procedure is through a survey process. And this is a plea to all of the listeners to please, if you receive a survey, to respond. And understand that as of October 2013, this is important, in order for surveys to count, for services that are performed in a volume that exceeds more than a million a year, there must now be at least 75 responses to any given survey before it can be utilized in the evaluation process. If a service is performed greater than 100,000 times, so not quite as frequently, we're going to need at least 50 responses before the valuation can be carried forward. So please take these very seriously and realize that this is your opportunity to provide important input.
0: Well, on that note, I would say uh, of empowerment of the neurointerventional listeners to this podcast, I, I think it would be appropriate to say thank you to my uh, co-discussants, Dr. Ray Tu and Jackie Bello, who took time from their busy schedule to not only contribute to the article, which will soon be posted online, but to participate in this podcast. I know I learned a lot and I hope you did too. Till next time, this is Josh Hirsch for JNIS. Thank you.
1: Thank you.